Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Today on the podcast, I'm going to try to give you an algorithm that's going to be very helpful for responding to disasters involving human casualties. We call this algorithm the initial assessment, and it essentially has three main goals. The first goal is the safety of the responder. If you're responding to a disaster, accident, or incident, and you are injured, incapacitated, even killed as a result of your rescue attempt, that's not very helpful. And in fact, that's just another body for formal um, emergency medical services to have to deal with. So rescuer safety is kind of the first uh, important part of the initial assessment. The next important part is the early activation and um, kind of calling of additional resources if needed. An individual is not very uh, prepared to do a lot of different stuff in, in a disaster environment. They need supplies, they often need large amounts of people, and so one of the first most important things you can do is get on the phone and get some help. The final goal, and probably the most kind of robust, robust part of the initial assessment, is identifying and taking action against anything that could lead to the patient's death uh, kind of in the next few minutes, I would say. So you want to focus on things like the patient's airway, their breathing, start CPR if necessary, stop bleeding, and things like that. And so those are really the goals of the initial assessment. And I think it's really important for everyone to at least think about what they might do if they find themselves in a emergency or disaster situation. Okay, that's kind of the introduction. We're going to hit all that stuff again because that was really fast. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory. And that is, of course, related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this basically, the whole thing started about a year ago now. It's October of 2020, and I think November of 2019 is kind of when things started revving up. And what I've noticed is that the emergency preparedness in place for COVID-19 was pretty abysmal. I feel like we were ill-prepared on an international, national, local, and even personal level for such a disaster. I mean, the good news is, is on the broad spectrum of emergencies and catastrophes, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is actually fairly mild. I mean, the data has been kind of a moving target, but things like hospitalizations have certainly been less than 5% of those who are sick and will probably end up being well less than 5% of the population. And even mortality, or the number of people dying, is going to end up being well less than 1% of, of people who get it, and, and, prob and probably much, much less than 1% of the population. But the problem is, is that there's bigger problems out there. Try and imagine a pandemic that would kill 20% of people. I mean, there have been pandemics like that in human history. Imagine the eruption of a megavolcano like Yellowstone. Imagine a direct hit from a solar flare from the sun 
or even a, a fairly large asteroid impact. I mean, these events could could cause tremendous hardship and even threaten the survival of our species. I believe that in the future, we almost certainly will be confronted with disasters like this. What I view the COVID-19 pandemic is as is actually an alarm bell. It's kind of screaming at us to learn from our, to learn from our mistakes, improve our preparedness, and get ready for much greater challenges. While a large part of the preparation is is the role of governments and international organizations, preparedness actually begins with every single one of us. I think people have gotten so used to looking to the government for help. You know, when's when's the money coming? When's the bailout coming? What have you guys uh, got planned to help with this? Well, at the end of the day, I think a lot of us have heard things like, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. I think all of us need to look in the mirror and realize that we're a society. The country is us. As such, preparedness starts with us. What you do today will affect how you're able to handle things tomorrow. We've talked about that with overeating and obesity. We've talked about that with thinking and dementia. And now we're going to talk about that with emergency preparedness. And like all those other things that I've talked about, this is really important. The key to preparedness is thinking through every possible emergency situation or scenario that you can. Planning ahead for such scenarios, gathering necessary supplies, and then periodically revisiting scenarios to keep them fresh on the mind. Simulation is literally an invaluable tool for preparedness, and it's greatly underutilized. Things are always way easier if we've been through them before, or at least thought about them before. You do not want to be caught in an emergency situation having never thought about or been in such a situation before. It is stressful, it is not good, and your outcomes will certainly suffer. In the hospital, I respond to what are called code blues all the time. Every single room in the hospital has a button on it. And when you hit that button, usually something comes on the overhead code blue room 207 code blue room 207 and what that means is that somebody hit that button because they were worried that that patient was collapsing or dying uh, maybe they all of a sudden stopped responding and their heart rate started to go down maybe they didn't have a pulse and, and weren't breathing at all whatever the case someone was worried that that person was essentially dying and so what happens is we all rush to the code and we do what's necessary to try and resuscitate the patient. How we prepare for that is simulation. We run through code scenarios with our medical teams. On top of this, I'm constantly running through various scenarios in my head. What could go wrong? What would I do about this? If this happened, what would I do about that? I even review kind of really rare and obscure things that a physician may see once or never in their career because I know when that happens I want to be, be ready because it could matter to my patients. It could make a big difference. On top of just rehearsing and simulating and working through scenarios in my brain, 
I also carry around cheat sheets. These sheets often contain kind of treatment algorithms or kind of step-by-step -step what I'm going to do in a, in a code blue situation. They might contain information on drugs that I might need to use. It might have doses included as well. And then also settings for electricity. Oftentimes when someone's heart stops, we, we shock them and try and get their heart started again. And it's, it's hard to remember sort of what those voltages are sometimes, and so it's nice to have them on a sheet ready to go. But basically, every time I respond to a code blue, I have a plan. And any time that you respond to an emergency, you need to have a plan too. And the best way to have a plan and make sure that you can execute it is with the use of an algorithm. Whether you're the first person on the scene of an automobile accident, come across an injured person in a remote wilderness environment, say on the side of a mountain or on a glacier, or just see a coworker or somebody in the park collapse, you need to be prepared. Luckily, in all of these situations, in every other emergency involving a human casualty, you can safely and effectively use the same initial assessment. And the initial assessment is basically that algorithm that you're going to follow that's going to accomplish those three very important goals. I'm going to go over those goals again. The safety of the responder the procurement of additional resources if necessary, as well as stabilizing anything that could kill the patient in the next few minutes. There are numerous algorithms for performing an initial assessment. Emergency medical technicians, paramedics, military people, search and rescue folks all have their own little protocols. They're based oftentimes on just historical training, what, what's kind of always been used and what's worked, as well as the likelihood of certain injuries and illnesses. For instance, in the military, where gunshot wounds and subsequent bleeding are going to be more common, you see the stopping of, of bleeding much higher up on the algorithm than in a lot of other instances. And that's just a result of the fact that that's one of the things they're dealing with often is gunshot wounds and bleeding. The initial assessment is the key to not missing things and being very thorough in your, in your rescue and resuscitation attempts. It's something that needs to be descriptive enough to help you get through the scenario, but not so complicated that it's bogging you down and it's hard to follow. I recommend writing your algorithm down and keeping it in places like your car, your first aid kit, your backpack. And when shit hits the fan, take it out and follow it. You will not look stupid walking around with a, pa a paper in your hand and being very thorough about ticking all the boxes that need to be ticked. However, you will look silly running around the, the scene site like an idiot not knowing what to do. Like I said, when I'm in a code blue, I've got pieces of paper in my hand. I'm cross-referencing things like drug doses, electricity doses. I don't want to miss things. And this is something I'm a pro at. If you're a layperson, 
you better believe you're going to need to grab that sheet, especially if all, if all you've ever done is, say, taken a you know 18-hour course on this, or maybe you've never done anything. Write down that sheet, keep it with you, know where it is, and bring it out when you need it. It'll pay dividends for you. All right, and here's the algorithm that I like to use. Like I said, there's lots of them. I think the important part of any really good algorithm is they hit those three boxes I mentioned above. Rescuer is safe, additional resources are obtained, immediate life threats are stabilized. I came up with this one myself. We'll see what you guys think. The, the acronym for the algorithm is called SAD Lab Cats. SAD Lab Cats. Let's run through that real quick and then we'll do it line by line. Scene safety, additional resources, disease prevention, level of consciousness, airway, breathing, circulation, arterial bleeds, temperature, and spine. Okay, back up to the top, S, scene safety. Can the scene be safely entered? If it's not safe to enter, you should wait. Like we said, having two, two bodies on the scene is not helpful. If there's a car on fire that might explode, if you're at the bottom of an avalanche chute that hasn't fully broken off, if whatever scenario that's not safe, stay out of there. Wait for people that can safely access it. The A stands for additional, oh, and I should say about scene safety. If you're doing the emergency medical technician or paramedics courses and you're on the practical, if you don't start your scenario off with scene safety, it's an automatic failure, or at least it was when I trained. I bet it still is. The A stands for additional resources, and then I have another part of that number of patients. Can you handle the situation? Or do you perhaps need help? How many people are injured? This is the point where I would be calling. I would say, is the scene safe? And the next move is to kind of size everything up and make the call if need be to get people, get definitive care on its way. The D stands for disease prevention. In healthcare, we know this is body substance isolation. This is how we protect ourselves as caregivers and rescuers from infectious diseases that could be passed from the patient to us. Things like hepatitis C, HIV, um, SARS-CoV-2. For this reason, I always recommend carrying some medical gloves with you in your car, in your backpack. It is so nice to have if you're if you're ever going to be basically touching another patient or especially someone you don't know on top of this a mask can be helpful after the pandemic take that mask off and put it in your first aid kit it may come in handy then finally eye protection can be really important as well you've got to protect yourself disease prevention is kind of part of scene safety you don't want to be contracting diseases as a result of your good samaritan helping of another individual so protect yourself. When I did a uh, kind of a research study on mountaineers in Colorado and we looked at what things they had in their first aid kit, almost none of them had gloves. And I took this as kind of a miss, and you should too. Okay, so those are the kind of pre-seen parts of it. That's the sad part. The sad part of the sad lab cats. Next we're going to get into how to actually kind of 
address and stabilize a patient. So at this point, you've established the scene is safe, you've called for help, you protected yourself from infection, and now you're going to actually go up to the patient. What are you going to do? Well, just say, hey, I'm Bill Brandenburg. I saw what happened. Are you okay? Say something to him. The L in, in lab stands for level of consciousness. You're going to see, do, are they alert and oriented? Do they respond with words that don't make sense? Do they not respond at all, but then make some sort of pain response when you say rub on their sternum or pinch their skin? Or are they completely unresponsive? Now, if they're completely alert and oriented, you obviously don't need to worry about airway breathing circulation. Even if they're saying words to you, even if they don't make sense, these probably aren't going to be so important. But if you're dealing with someone that only responds to pain, or especially someone that's unresponsive, you're going to want to go down that ABC algorithm. And the, the A is airway. What you're going to do is simply make sure they have an open airway. And, and in the uh, pre-hospital environment, this will consist of tilting their head back and lifting their chin a little bit. That'll just open their airway. If they're vomiting, you're going to want to turn them on their side so that they're not having that go down their lungs. Help them protect their airway. The next thing B is breathing. And C is circulation. At the same time, it's recommended that you kind of put your ear up, up close to their mouth and check for a pulse, either on their neck or on their radial artery. And it's recommended that you look for about 10 seconds. If you can't feel a pulse and there's not breathing, you need to start CPR. These days, compression-only CPR is totally okay. If you see someone collapse in a park or at work, a lot of these people are going to have cardiac arrest. They're in some sort of non-perfusing cardiac rhythm, and they need chest compressions and, and also electricity. That's why you got to get your, your real rescue personnel coming, call them early before we even got to here, and get those CPR started. Now, if somebody did drown, you cannot do compression-only CPR. They will need rescue breaths as well. 30 to 2 is usually the ratio. 30 chest compressions to 2 breaths. You can do the breaths and compressions in normal CPR too, but people tend to freak out, so sometimes we just say just do compression-only if you're worried about it. The next is A, arterial bleeds. You're going to look for active bleeding. If you see bleeding, apply direct pressure. This can literally just start with your gloved hand. Put a gloved hand over that spurting, that spurting uh, fountain of blood. After that, maybe grab a shirt or a rag or something. Put, it, uh, put some pressure on it. If the bleeding continues, you may try to wrap wrap the wound with something like an elastic wrap or tape to see if that can stop the bleeding. And then finally, if needed, and, and if you can get one on, a tourniquet. A tourniquet will basically stop the flow of blood to that extremity and will, will stop the bleeding. And that should never be, a tourniquet should never be withheld uh, because you're worried about their limb. You want to prevent them from bleeding out. So if they're actively bleeding and it's a limb and it can take a tourniquet, put the tourniquet on. Like I said, the military has this arterial blood part right at the top because they want to stop that bleeding real quick because gunshot wounds cost a lot of bleeding. Okay, the next T stands for temperature. And then also, also along with that is environment. 
Injured or sick people can get very cold or very hot rapidly. You've got to protect these individuals from exposure to adverse temperatures, adverse conditions, wetness. Um, if the area that the patient is currently in is dangerous, you need to remove yourself and if possible the patient as well. Um, just basically realize that if a patient is sitting there and it's cold outside and they've got a broken bone, they are going to be at huge risk for something like hypothermia, so keep them warm. Be aware of their temperature and of the conditions and try and keep them in as comfortable of a setting as possible. And then finally, the S stands for spine. If you're concerned for a spinal or head injury, you want to have great caution anytime you're manipulating or moving the neck or the spine. This is to prevent a spinal cord injury or an exacerbation of an existing spinal cord injury. I will say that this is a little bit theoretical. I have tried to look through the literature and look for cases of people that had neurologic function intact at the site and then after transport it was gone. I had a hard time finding good resources. I think we worry about spine maybe more than we should in the um, emergency setting. I think it unfortunately compromises our ability to effectively manage airway and breathing a lot of the time and I think I think worrying too much about spine has hurt more people than it's helped. But I'll say a lot of other algorithms will put spine right at the top. First thing, secure the C-spine. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's true. But I will say that if someone has had trauma, you need to be gentle with them. Be careful moving their head. Try and keep it in an anatomically aligned position, meaning that the head is straight in line with the rest of the spine. If you can, gently move or place the position back into that alignment. But if you get a lot of pain, Maybe just allow them to stay as is and, and transport them to more definitive care. That is kind of the algorithm. That's are, Those are the things you go through to get somebody ready for transport. Stop anything that's going to kill them right away. Keep yourself safe. Get the resources you need. Again, that's SAD Lab Cats. There's a lot of different acronyms, but I'm pretty proud about the SAD Lab Cats just because it's nice when it works out to be words. Okay, so after you've gained control of the scene and stabilized that patient with the above uh, initial assessment algorithm, resurfeit the scene. Check, is it still safe? Has something changed? Has extra help arrived? And importantly, take a moment for yourself. Hydrate yourself. Adjust your clothing if need be. Take off a jacket, put on a jacket. These scenarios rev us up and they can take it out of us and if you don't pay attention to yourself you could become the next victim and that's happened to people in the past they have worked so hard to try and help others in mass casualty in incidents that they've become exhausted and dehydrated and cold or too hot and then that's an issue so so constantly be, be revisiting yourself how am I doing am I still safe to continue this work if you're in a wilderness environment, it might be quite a bit of time before any help arrives. You're going to need to make a plan for changing conditions. Night may come. Help may not be available until the morning. Rain may come. The temperature could change drastically. Have a plan for all that stuff. After you're done with your initial assessment, the next step 
is to perform a detailed physical exam and a medical slash personal history. So you're going to basically look at them from head to toe and go over things like what medications are on, what their medical problems are, um, when's the last time they ate, if they've had any surgeries, things like that. However, don't let those things after the initial assessment delay transport. If a patient is ready to be transported, send them on their way and get them to definitive care. If you want to learn more about this stuff, if this stuff is interesting to you, if you want to be truly prepared to respond to emergencies and disasters, I would highly recommend pursuing additional training. There's so much more to say, and this stuff is so cool. I will say that I started my journey with a Wilderness First Responder course, and it has now progressed to being a medical doctor. So if you like this stuff, do more of it. We need more of it. Like I said, everybody should be prepared to respond to a disaster, and preparedness starts with each and every one of us. The final point that I want to talk about regarding disaster response and preparedness is reflection. Anyone who responds to emergencies, takes care of patients, or even just creates response plans from, say, behind a desk in an office somewhere, needs to be constantly reflecting. You need to ask yourself what went well, what could have been done better, and what steps will be needed in the future to improve outcomes. Disasters never go as planned, and response can always be improved. In the first step, is reflecting on what happened, how it went, what you can do better. I will say that this is not just important in disaster response, it's also just important in daily life. After each one of my shifts, I always reflect on the things that went well and went poorly, and I try to fill in knowledge gaps that I felt like prevented me from providing the best care possible. And I think by doing that every time, I continue to better myself, and, and, and through that pathway, I'm able to provide better care for my patients. As far as reflection goes on a government level, I have just been appalled regarding the United States response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So many mistakes were made. So many things were learned. So many incorrect things were said. And I have seen very few, if any, apologies or serious reflection regarding what could be done better. This lack of self-reflection on a national level is alarming. The only way for us to be prepared and do better, should we confront a more severe, more dangerous disaster, is through reflection and subsequent preparation. We are setting us ourselves up for failure in the future with this uh, way of dealing with things. Okay, that is SAD Lab Cats. That's the initial assessment. That's how you safely and effectively respond to uh, a casualty or an emergency situation. Please keep in mind that we just covered the absolute basics in this podcast regarding the initial assessment. There's so much more which could be said. 
we didn't go over any technique for things regarding CPR and rescue breathing. There's other emergency procedures which can be done on the chest for things like pneumothoraces and other problems that should be addressed in the immediate session. But this was kind of more meant for the lay person and to just set the lay of the land to be then used for further training. I'd love to hear what people think. There's a lot of ways to skin this uh, Saddle Lab Cats. A lot of people use different algorithms. I will say that the best algorithm for you is the one that you practice with, that you understand, and the one that you would feel comfortable using in an emergency situation. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently